Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Paul. If I met you, we are walking really slowly through this first chapter of Ephesians, and it's blown my mind and it's warming my heart. I want to start this morning by recommending a book to you a book which has helped me to love God more. A book that's opened my eyes to the the depth and the the magnitude of God's love for me. And a book that has shown me that God pursues me and just lavishes me with undeserved grace. And don't laugh and don't mock. It's a Christian romance fiction book because real men can read Christian romance fiction. (laughs) And it's called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. Redeeming Love, and it's a a remarkable story. It's a story of of a woman called Angel, and as a child, she she is trapped and forced in prostitution. And so she grows up. Uh, with this this pimp who holds her captive. She has no life. She has no freedom. Uh, She's hopeless and she's helpless. Uh, And the other character in this book is a guy called Michael Hosea, and he's a good man. And God tells Michael to take Angel as his wife. And he's thinking, what? Like a prostitute for my wife? And so he goes to the brothel and he pays a price. Not a price to sleep with her, but a a price to redeem her. A price to set her free. Uh, But he doesn't just pay to release her, he actually wants a relationship with her. And so Michael brings Angel back to his house, not, not to abuse her or use her, but to love her. To love her and to lavish her with undeserved blessings. And what I love about this story is that that Angel can't quite accept it. She can't quite accept that somebody would love her unconditionally. And so she is harsh. She is horrible to Michael. 
She keeps trying to push him away, but, but Michael loves her. He's patient. He's gracious. He's kind. An angel runs back to her old way of life because it's easier that way. And Michael pursues her and woos her and lavages her with grace. It's a remarkable story. Redeeming love. It's a story from the Bible, actually. It's a story of Hosea, the book of the Bible, where God's people are unfaithful to God, but God woos them and pursues them and lavishes them with grace. But actually, it's my story and your story. It's my story and your story because we were trapped in sin. We were enslaved to sin. And God sees us and redeems us and pursues us and woos us and lavishes us with grace. But just like Angel, many people here this morning find it hard to accept that God could actually love them. There are, there are people here this morning who, are, who know that Jesus died for them, but, but they're struggling to accept that you really are forgiven and you really are free. And there are people here this morning who are claiming to love Jesus, but you are living, living your old way of life, kind of going, oh, this is much easier to live in the ways of the world than to be set free by Jesus. And you're missing out. You just need to accept that, that God loves you, God has redeemed you, God has freed you, God has lavished you with his grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the mark of true spirituality is the measure of your amazement at the grace of God. The measure of your, your amazement at the grace of God. So before we look at the blessings today, I actually want to start with God's heart, with the heart of God. Because the danger is that you get so fixated on what God gives you that you forget the God who gave it to you. You get so fixated on the blessings of God and not God himself. So what is the heart of God? How do you think about God? And I hope you don't think that God is restrictive, oppressive, a killjoy, a sport sport, or a, a taskmaster. What is the heart of God? Verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Love that verse. The riches of God's grace, the, the abundance of God's, God's grace, the, the wealth of God's grace. It's James 5. He gives you more and more and more grace, grace upon grace upon grace. That he lavished on us. Underline that word lavished. It means overflowing. It's like a fountain that just keeps on erupting. It's like a, a burst water maze that you just can't stop. It, it's like a volcano. It, it just keeps coming and coming and coming because God's grace is not a, a meager drop. He drenches you with, with grace. You ever thought about the feeding of the 5,000? You know, when Jesus feeds 5,000 with loaves and fish, he could have fed 50 people. And that would have been extraordinary. That would have been abundance. Fifty people from five loaves and two fish. Why did he choose to feed 5,000? And I think it's because he wants to show you that he has abundance of blessings, an abundance of grace, an overflowing grace. And again, maybe you hear you just think that God's grace is, is just this little tiny 
sufficient for you alone. It is, it is overwhelmingly rich and lavish. That's the heart of God. He lavishes you with grace. Or verse 9, he made known the mystery of his will. He revealed to you the thing that had been kept hidden. He revealed to you that he was sending his precious son, Jesus. Why did he do that? Verse 9, look at these next phrase. According to his good pleasure. Not his begrudging. Not God saying, oh, if I really have to. If I really must. The heart of God is his good pleasure, his deep desire, his longing, his passion, his heart. This is your God. He, he lavishes you with grace. He longs for you. He overflows with love for you. And I start with that because you will live a, a second-rate, mundane Christian life if you just focus on the blessings, not God himself. So in, in verses 3 to 14, and we're just going to focus on verses 7 to 10 this morning, this one long sentence where he, he lists these blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Remember what I said last week? There are no imperatives in these verses. There's no commands here. So God is not asking anybody here to do anything except marvel at God and worship God. So here's the first blessing, verse 7. It's the word redemption. You are redeemed in Christ. You've been set free in Christ. You've been liberated in Christ. Read verse 7 with me. In Christ. But when you come to Christ, when you're united with him in his death and resurrection, in him we have redemption. It's interesting. This is the first time in these verses that you have something. Up until now, it's all about what God has done for you. So he has chosen you, he has adopted you, but, but now you've actually received something. Verse 7, you have redemption. And that, that redemption is such a, a Christian word, isn't it? It is today, but it never used to be. Redemption used to be an everyday word. It just means to set free, it means to liberate. And so you'd set free an animal that was caught. You'd set free a human being. It's about freedom. You'd be set free from debt, set free from addiction, set free from anxiety, set free from a controlling relationship. It was an everyday word, but by the, by the time of Jesus, it was associated with the marketplace. Because in the marketplace, slaves were redeemed. Slaves were set free, and they were redeemed at a price. In the time of Jesus... There were about six million people in slavery. Isn't that horrific? Quick aside, sadly nothing has changed. As we sit here in Kirribilli, there are people held captive across the globe. Child labor, sex slaves, women forced to do horrific things, people held captive by financial debt. Nothing has changed. There's a desperate need for redemption. Anyway, to set these slaves free at the time of Jesus, you paid a redemption price. The, the true story of a, of a young woman who was a slave, and she sat there 
lank hair, looking miserable and helpless and hopeless. And this wealthy man walked past. You may have heard of him. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And he saw this slave girl. He took pity on her. He took out a, a wadge of cash, and he paid a price to redeem this slave girl. Now, the slave girl is overwhelmed with gratitude, and she says this, What do you want me to do for you, Mr. Lincoln? I will cook for you. I will clean for you. I will work for you all my days. And Abraham Lincoln said this, You don't have to do anything. You are free to go. You're free to live as you please, but please live as a redeemed person. That is redemption. God sets you free to live as a redeemed person. God sets you free to live as a a person who knows God, loves God, and loves other people, and, and loves yourself. That's the blessing that Jesus offers you, redemption. Now, that word is steeped in the Old Testament. So look at this verse from Deuteronomy. It's on the screen. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, if you know your Old Testament, God's people were slaves in Egypt. God's people were held captive to the Egyptians, and, and they were oppressed, and Pharaoh was this cruel, tyrannical master. And again, if you know your Old Testament, then God's people cried out to God to be set free. And God heard their cries, and so he redeemed the people. Remember the plagues? He sent plague after plague after plague, boils, bloods, gnats, frogs, locusts, hail, and then that final plague that we just read about, the death of the firstborn child. But he, he liberates his people and says, take a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, and put the blood around the doorpost. And when they see the blood of the lamb around the doorpost, I will redeem you and set you free. See, it's costly redemption, cost the blood of a lamb. He sets free his people through the Red Sea. He liberates them and takes them to the promised land to live as free people. That's the picture in the Old Testament. Now read verse 7. In Christ, you have been redeemed through his blood. That was the redemption price. Not, not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1 says this. You know it's not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you are redeemed from the empty way of life but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So yes, redemption is free to us, but it cost God everything. The, the story of a, of a lady who was on a bus in the US, and she is singing this, this old hymn, you might know it, I'm redeemed, praise the Lord, I'm redeemed, praise the Lord. And this other lady on the bus comes and says, are you a Christian? Are you redeemed? I am a Christian, he said. And the lady asked, when were you redeemed? When were you redeemed? How would you answer that? She gave this perfect answer. I was redeemed 2,000 years ago. But I only realized it last year. Isn't that a great answer? When were you redeemed? 2,000 years ago. That's when Jesus shed his blood for you. But when you realize it, when you accept Jesus, that's the moment you're set free. What does it mean to be redeemed? And I share this because I fear we're not living as redeemed people. 
two things. You are no longer a slave to sin, and you're no longer a slave to Satan. Maybe I'll say that I'm not a slave to sin, and I'm not a slave to Satan. Let's start with the sin bit. You're not a slave to sin. You might have heard of the three P's of sin, the, the penalty for sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. If you're in Christ, you've been set free from that penalty for sin. Let's play a game. It's called the redemption game. We're going to play this game where you're going to go through life and you've got to try and pay for all the wrongs that you've done. So you've got to make sure that you've done more good things than bad things. You've got to make sure that today, when you go to bed, you've done more good things that outweigh the bad things so you can sleep peacefully at night. Sounds horrific, doesn't it? And yet, let's be honest, that's how most of us live and think. As though somehow we've got to pay a debt. You've got nothing to pay. The penalty was paid at Calvary. What are we saying? Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. You've been set free from the penalty of sin. Please do not go through life thinking you've got any debt to pay. But here's the biggie, and here's what most of us don't live by. You've also been set free from the power of sin. Sin has no power over you. Sin has no control over you. If you've got the Spirit of God living in you, which you have if you believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God who lives in you helps you to say no to that sin. I don't know what it is in your life that that you think that you cannot conquer. I don't know what sin you've kind of given up on, but please don't give up. You have power to conquer that sin in the name of Jesus Christ because his blood has set you free. You're free from the penalty. You're free from the power. Now, sadly, you're not yet free from its presence. We will not be sinless until that moment we meet Jesus. I find that totally liberating. I've been set free from sin's penalty, from sin's power, but not yet its presence. So you're no longer a slave to sin, and you're no longer a slave to Satan. You know, the accuser, the devil, the one who whispers lies. He has no power over you. I love this verse. It's on the screen from Colossians 2. It's talking about the cross. Having, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See those three words? At Calvary, when his blood was shed, Jesus disarmed Satan. He took away all his weapons. It's like an army without any guns or any grenades or any tanks. They are powerless. Satan has no power. He is weak. More than that, he, he made a public spectacle of him. He, he exposed Satan to be a fake. You ever bought anything fake off the internet? It, it promises something it never delivers. That, that's what Satan is like. He, he, is, he is fake. He is powerless. And then he triumphed over them. It's victory at the cross. 
I've shared before that my kids have this, this, this dance and this thing they do when they, when they win at something. They kind of put an L over your head and go, loser, loser, loser. And that's what the cross says to Satan. You are the loser. You are powerless and you are weaponless. And so, you know, the weapons of Satan, his lies, his whispering, his discouragement. You say, get behind me, Satan. You have no power over me. And too many Christians are not living as redeemed people. You know, when God brought his people out of slavery, he took the promised land, what did they do? They grumbled, they whinged, they complained, and they looked back on their life and thought, actually, it was better like that. It was not better like that. If you've been set free, sin has no power, Satan has no power, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's the first blessing, the blessing of redemption. Number two, the blessing of forgiveness. Look at verse 7 again. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. We've been set free through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So, so redemption and forgiveness are like two sides of the same coin. But they are different. Because it's possible to be redeemed and have no relationship. It's possible for me to set free a prisoner and they walk away free, but I have no ongoing relationship with them. See, forgiveness is a relational word. And God doesn't want just to just redeem you. He wants to forgive you. Forgiveness is about a relationship. You know that. You know when somebody has wronged you and somebody has wounded you and somebody has hurt you? You can set them free. You can say, you know, in my mind, that's okay, off you go, but I want nothing to do with you. But forgiveness is when you get rid of that bitterness and the anger and the hurt in your heart, and when you see them, you actually can embrace them. That's what forgiveness does. It, it restores relationships. Verse 7, in Christ you have forgiveness of your sins. There are, three different, there are three different words for sins in the Bible, and you've been forgiven from all of them. There's the, the transgression word, which is the, the trespass word. Is when you, you know when you're walking through a field, you have a sign saying, no trespassing, and you think, I don't care, ignore the sign, I'm going to go anyway. We do that with God, don't we? We know what God's word says. We know how he wants us to live. We say, stuff you, God. I'm going to do it anyway. That's a transgression word. Then you've got the iniquity word, which is a word where you, you, you deviate from a path, like, like a, a runner who takes a shortcut. He cheats. That's what we do. We, we, we see God's word, and we go, no, I'm going to deviate from that. And the other word is the sins word, which is the, the falling short, where you, you miss the mark. And you fail to keep God's perfect standard. Now, this word sins in verse 7, it covers all of those. Your trespasses, your iniquities, your sins. And so before a holy God, you need forgiveness. Now, if redemption is an Old Testament word, so is forgiveness. 
Let me ask you a question. If you had lived 3,000 years ago, how would you have received forgiveness from God? If you'd lived 3,000 years ago, how would you receive forgiveness from God? And the answer is, every single day, every single day, you'd have to make a sacrifice. Have you grasped that? Every single day, you'd have to take a bird or take a, a bull or take an animal of some sort, and you would slit that animal's throat, and blood would be shed, because blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death, says God. And so something has to die to forgive sins. And 3,000 years ago, it would have been an animal. Day after day, week after week, year after year, you'd shed an animal's blood. And then once a year, God's people would come together for the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, they get two animals. They transfer the sins of Israel onto one animal, slit its throat, Blood was shed for forgiveness, and they would transfer the sins onto the other animal, and that other animal would be sent into the desert as a picture that, that your sins have been sent into the wilderness and God sees them no more. That's what you would do day by day, week by week, year by year, but you never had this assurance because you would never know whether you'd paid the price for that day. And then Christ came. Then Christ entered his world. That's the mystery of verse 8 and 9. With all wisdom and understanding, God made known, God revealed to us the mystery, his, like an open secret, God was revealing his plan, a plan that no one could even imagine. Because Jesus stepped into the world, he purposed in Christ, Christ came. And they said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the mystery. The mystery that God made Jesus, who had no sin, become sin for us. It's the only way to be forgiven is through the blood of Jesus. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a missionary called David Livingston, who was a missionary to Africa. And the African tribes couldn't comprehend how the death of one man, the blood of one man, could pay for the sins of many. Maybe you thought that question yourself. And so David Livingston got, got out two coins. He took out a, a massive British copper coin that was worthless, worth nothing, and took out a tiny, tiny gold coin, pure gold, that was worth a million times that copper coin. And says, see these two coins? This, this smaller one is worth a thousand million times more because the difference is in the metal. And that's how forgiveness works. We are like the big copper coin and Jesus is small, tiny gold coin. He is so different from us. Yeah, of course he's like us, of course he's human, but Jesus is pure and Jesus is holy and Jesus is righteous. And so when he sheds his blood, it's not just another good person shedding blood, it's the Holy Son of God shedding his blood. That's the only way you can be fully forgiven if God himself sheds his precious blood. That's what forgiveness means. God has cleansed you. God has washed you. God has made you whiter than snow. And God has, has as far as the east is from the west, he, he's removed your sins from you. So you are free and you're forgiven and you're loved. It's what we all long for, forgiveness. The secular humorist wrote this, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. 
I have nobody to forgive me. But we have got someone to forgive us. His name is Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's according to the riches of his grace. There's a lost art in church. It's the art of a daily confession. I am not talking about that moment when you give your life to Christ, where you profess faith in Christ, and you are washed totally at that moment. That's extraordinary. If you come to Christ, that moment you put your faith in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, have all been fully forgiven. There's nothing that God holds against you. That's extraordinary. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the daily confession. You remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Remember that episode? And he comes to Peter, and he's about to wash Peter's feet. And, and Peter says, oh, Jesus, not just my feet, but my whole body. Wash all of me. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. You don't need your whole body washed because you already had your bath. You've already had your bath, but as you've gone through your day, your feet have got dirty, so every single day you need to wash your feet. That is the Christian life. When you come to Christ, your body is fully washed. You're fully clean. But as you go through your daily life, your feet get dirty, and it's good to come to God, and it's good for your soul at the end of the day just to confess your sins. Do you ever, do you ever do that? Do you ever get on your knees and say, wow, you've fully forgiven me, and I look back on my day, and all that has been washed clean. Listen to this confession. It's a goodie. For my deceitful heart and crooked thoughts, for barbed words spoken deliberately, for thoughtless words spoken hastily, for envious, prying eyes, for ears that rejoice in iniquity, for greedy hands, for wandering, loitering feet, for haughty looks. Have mercy on me, O God. Almighty God, in asking thy forgiveness, I, I can't claim a right to be forgiven, but I cast myself again on thy unbounded love. I plead no merit. I plead no extenuating circumstance. I plead not the frailty of my nature. I can't plead the force of temptations. I can't plead the persuasion of others who led me astray. I sit before you a sinner and only say, thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thy Son and my Lord who has fully cleansed me. Do you ever pray those kind of prayers? So good for your soul because it casts you constantly on the blood of Jesus. So you're redeemed, you're forgiven. And our last word is this. It's the word unity. This is the blessing. This is the plan of God to, to unite us in Christ because God always planned to redeem people in Christ. So if I'm redeemed and you're redeemed, then we're united in Christ. If I'm forgiven and you're forgiven, then we're united in Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel that, that Jesus unites people who have nothing in common. Jesus unites people who were lifelong enemies. He unites people who, not around class and not around education and not around postcodes or politics, but, but around the person of Jesus. When Jesus comes, he wants unity, not disunity. When Jesus comes, he wants friendship, not fighting. When Jesus comes, he wants 
togetherness, not tribalism. That we're one, though we are many. And Jesus said that way before Qantas Airlines. Remember the prayer of Jesus, John 17, is, a, is, a, is such an important prayer. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't that extraordinary? That the best witness to the world that Jesus has come is when Christians live as a united people. Because that's where we're heading according to verse 10. God's plan, God's purpose for this world, verses 9 and 10. He, he made known the mystery of his will. He began it when Christ came, verse 9. Christ came and united people. He brought peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. Verse 10, to be, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So we're looking forward to that day when Christ will come again. To bring unity. See that word? to bring togetherness, to bring oneness to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. There's going to come a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Whether they want to or not, either joyfully or defiantly. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the day that we're heading towards, a day when all things in heaven and on earth are united under Christ. That's the goal. That's why we're here. That's where we're heading. But you don't have to wait because God has started it now. And it's called the church. Because the church is supposed to be this picture of the blessings and the beauty of unity. Think about the, the people that Jesus chose to follow him. They weren't monochrome. Samaritans, zealots, tax collectors, Pharisees, rich, poor. Think about the first century, the, the wonder that Jews and Gentiles could be reconciled by the blood of Jesus. That togetherness is a powerful witness. And that's what the church is supposed to be like today. Not uniformity, but but Unity. And I'm not saying that we tolerate heresy or biblical untruth. Don't mishear me. But we're supposed to be one in Christ. And there's something profoundly powerful and beautiful about Christian togetherness. Psalm 133, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. Isn't that a great verse? How good and pleasant it is when Christians who are so diverse live together in unity. How, how good it is when Christians from different cultures and different traditions and different ages are united in Christ. Now listen carefully how good it is when Christians who think a bit differently on a truckload of secondary issues, on forms of baptism on clerical dress, on spiritual gifts, on music in church, on method of communion, how, how good it is when we think differently, but we're united in Christ. 
how good it is because the watching world says there's something about that Jesus person that can unite those people who think differently. But the sad reality is that Psalm 133 verse 1 should be rewritten. It should be, it should be written today as how good and pleasant it would be if brothers and sisters could actually live together in unity. Because the sad reality, my friends, is that so many Christians are way better at dividing than they are at uniting. We are so, so good at finding fault with other churches. We're so good at finding fault with other denominations, thinking we're the only one true church. And it's polarizing and it's petty. And it's damaging. It's damaging to God's church because people walk into church and they feel condemned or they feel judged because they might think a bit differently. And it's damaging to our witness because the watching world does not see the peace that Jesus brings and the unity that Jesus brings. They just see Christians behaving badly. Rachel, my wife, went to the 24-7 prayer conference at the end of last year. And the speaker there said something like this, that revival would not happen here in Australia until Christians actually united and denominations started to work together. And again, I'm not talking about not standing up for biblical truth. Of course, we stand up for what is right and true. But we can do way more together than we can separately. And that's the heart of God. We're heading towards this unity. We'll be around that throne on that last day with Christians from all denominations. Anglicans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Catholics, Free Church. All around the throne, worshipping God together. Wouldn't it be great if you could do that today? See the power of the gospel? Because people noticed. So please live as redeemed people. You're free from sin, you're free from Satan. Live as forgiven people. There's nothing that you have done that hasn't been forgiven, so let go. But let's pursue unity, shall we? And show the watching world just how glorious this gospel really is. Let me pray. Father, thank you that your heart is for us. Thank you, Father, that you are a God who lavishes us with your grace. And that grace never runs out. It's grace upon grace upon grace. I want to pray this morning for anybody here who is still living as though they're not redeemed, still living as though they're held captive to a particular sin or addiction. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd open their eyes to the freedom they have in Christ. Lord, forgive us for the times that we fight. Forgive us for times we look down on other churches or other denominations and forgive for times when we're so proud or arrogant thinking that we know it all. Help us, Lord, to pursue that unity, the unity that we're heading towards on that last day.
Give us a glimpse, Father, of the way that you are uniting people in Christ. But we are sorry, Father, for the things that we do and say which communicate something that's quite different to the power of your gospel. I just want to invite you together to say this confession. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation.